Welcome to READ, the Research, Education, and Advocacy Podcast. In this series, prominent researchers, thought leaders, and educators will share their work, insights, and expertise about current research and best practices in education and child development. READ is produced by the Windward Institute. I'm Danielle Scarano, the Windward Institute's Research and Development Director and your host of the READ Podcast. In previous episodes of READ, we have learned from leaders across the fields of research, policy, and education. In this month's episodes, note the plural, I'm beyond excited to interview experts at the Windward School, Peter Beardsley and Lara Damashek. Peter and Lara serve as the Committee on Special Education Liaisons for our students, families, and teachers. Okay, ask literally anyone at Windward about Peter and Lara, and we all would universally agree that their leadership and expertise in the field of special education is unmatched. A little more about Peter Beardsley and Lara Damashek. Prior to coming to Windward, Peter Beardsley worked as a special education teacher, a CSC chairperson, a director of special ed, and an adjunct professor of special education. Lara Damashek worked as a special ed attorney and a New York City public school teacher before joining Windward. They assist parents and guardians in their interactions with the Committee on Special Education, and they frequently participate in meetings for Windward students. You can read their full bios on the Read website. Since I had so much to learn from Peter and Lara, this month, you have an exclusive opportunity to listen to two episodes, both available now on wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the first episode, Peter, Lara, and I talk about the fundamentals of special ed law and how it impacts students with disabilities. In the follow-up episode, you'll learn about actionable items families and educators can take to fully support and advocate for kids who need services. This is an insider's look at navigating special education in the United States. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, a pencil or pen and a notebook. I truly hope that the wealth of information in this episode helps families, educators, and advocates to ultimately support students everywhere. Welcome to Peter Beardsley and Lara Damashek to the Read Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, before I formally introduce you, I did speak a little bit about you in the introduction. We haven't physically seen each other since March, and truthfully, I miss you both. (laughs) So how are you both doing right now, and where are you in the world? Today, I'm at Windward Westchester. I have been doing meetings from home, really, the whole period between March and the end of June. I did most of my IEP meetings for Windward Kids at home, but I have been getting into school these days just because I enjoy being here, but I'm still doing some meetings from home. Mm. And Lara, what about you? So um, we were very excited to come back in person this fall after a long spring of working remotely from home. Um, For me, it was hectic with juggling the two kids' uh, schedules at home. I have two little kids, but um, luckily they're back in school, so I'm able to come into Windward physically and I'm working some days um, remotely as well. And like Peter said, we're pretty fortunate in that we can do our most of our work um, anywhere uh, because we do a lot of our meetings by telephone and Zoom. Right. I hear that this has been an extremely busy time for both of you. I mean, is this typical for the school year? I mean, when is the busy time for you both? I think the busy time for us has really typically been between February and June. Kids who have IEPs need to have annual reviews, and uh, a lot of our kids have annual reviews in that period. But it has been already busy in terms of uh, anniversary date IEPs and reevaluations. So we already have a lot going on. 
Oh, I bet. Before we get into the questions themselves, I just have to take this time to sing your praises. I mean, Peter and Lara, you, as I said in the introduction, as many people from Windward know, you're the Committee of Special Education liaisons of the Windward School. Your expertise and mere presence is unbelievably invaluable. I do want to start with a few personal stories. And, you know, for our read listeners who aren't familiar with Windward, I'm going to give you an insider's view of just how special Peter and Lara are to this community. And Peter, you know, I first met you probably about seven or eight years ago when I was an assistant teacher. You provided an extensive overview of the special education process for us. And truthfully, I was in graduate school at the time, and I was learning more from you in that hour than I did in a whole semester. So, you know, it was so comprehensive and so thorough. And you know, your calm and warm demeanor makes truthfully every teacher, every family feel empowered. And Lara, I know you and I had met when I was teaching at Windward Manhattan. And, you know, it's funny, there are many moments in my teaching career when I remember advocating for my students. And with you, there was this one meeting in particular that stands out so clearly. I mean, the power and energy between the two of us alone during that meeting I think was not only flooding in that tiny office, it probably emanated throughout the entire school. So (laughs) let's just preface with that. Um, You know, you and I must have spent about two hours at least advocating for this student's need in in the IEP meeting. And it was one that I was truthfully energized for months and still talking about it years later. So thank you. I mean, to say that our community is grateful for you, it just isn't enough. So I do want to get to the interview itself and provide our read listeners with the magic that is Peter Beardsley and Lara Damashek. So why don't we start by um, you, each of you providing a little bit about your background or a brief bio about yourselves. And again, I'll sort of take the lead just because somebody has to start the conversation. I just hope that both Lara and I can live up to her billing. We always get those <laughs> comments from parents and from teachers, uh, but it does put some pressure on us to be good, but we'll do our best today. I uh, have spent... Uh, an extensive time in my career working as a special education teacher, a special education administrator, uh, and also I've been at Windward now for, this is, I'm in my 11th year at the Windward School. So I, I really worked in a public school setting as a special education teacher for 27 years. I then worked in a public school setting as a special education administrator for another 14. Um, I have been at Windward again for 10 years. I'm in my 11th year. I have also taught graduate level special education courses in the graduate school of education at Manhattanville. So I've been doing this for a while. And um, I as well um, have not for as long, but I have worked in education for my entire professional career out of college. I was an AmeriCorps intern at Advocates for Children, where I advocated uh, for children to receive appropriate services who were involved in the juvenile justice system. Um, Then I went to school to become a teacher, and I taught in public school in New York City uh, to many students who were falling um, in the cracks of the special education system in New York City, I'd say, and were not getting the services they needed. I saw those students, but I was a general education teacher, and many of them were in my classroom not getting services. And then I went to law school to pursue a career in special education law. I worked for 10 years at a special education law firm in the New York City area. 
And a few years ago, when my family moved out of New York City, I reached out to um, Peter Beardsley in the hopes that he might need some help at Windward. And for the last um, three plus years, I've been with him as a CSE liaison at the Windward School. I learn new information about the two of you every time I speak to you. So thank you for providing that that brief bio. And I want, you know, you did both speak about your um, expertise and experiences in the law. So my first question for you and Peter, you can start is what laws, federal, state or local, dictate the rights of students in special education? Uh, the principal special education law is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that was passed originally in 1975 as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. Kids with disabilities also have protections under ADA, and actually reading was added to the list of major life activities when ADA was reauthorized. Uh, ADA is Americans for Di- with Disabilities Act, um, and kids can also access accommodations under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. So there, there is a, a significant legal framework available to families of kids with disabilities. But again, the principal special education law is really the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So let's dive deeper in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, so IDEA. What are those basic principles that are outlined for special education? Yeah, so the original special education law was passed in 1975 as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. And this was one of the first times that the federal government assumed a role in legislating issues related to education. And I think what you see in the period of time leading up to the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act is work by advocacy groups, work done by parents, uh, an awareness that there was a vast number of what I call kids with disabilities, what in those days were called uh, students with handicapping conditions. And I think the, the research that was done prior to the time that the law was passed revealed that over a million students were excluded from public education. There were another 8 million, about half of whom were not being appropriately served. They were identified, they were in school, but they were uh, not getting the services that they needed to be successful in school. And just this awareness that was um, based on advocacy work and based on court decisions led to the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. And essentially what happens um, with the passage of the Education for Handicapped Children Act in 1975 was that there was this recognition that if you were the parent of a student with a disability, the, the days when your child could be excluded from school or not appropriately served were over. And I think the basic principles that were established uh, when EHA was passed in 1975 included uh, parent participation in decision-making. Everybody remembers parent-teacher conferences in a public school or even in a private school setting. You go in, you listen for five minutes. Uh, This is not the case in the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. And essentially parent participation and decision-making makes parents 
a member of the decision-making team. And really at this time, decision-making for kids with disabilities was removed from school administrators and assigned to multidisciplinary teams and parents became members of that team and their uh, views were to be considered and were valuable in terms of developing educational programs for kids with disabilities. The basic principles, again, parent decision-making or parent participation in decision-making. Kids with disabilities have an opportunity to access a free, appropriate public education. And all of those terms have been defined. We usually just refer to this as the provision of FAPE. But again, the provision of FAPE Free means at no cost to the parent. Appropriate means an education that is designed to address the unique individual needs of a student. Uh, Public means it's provided uh, through the public school system. And there the principle is, if public schools are available to kids generally, they need to be available to subsets of kids, including kids with disabilities, and that's really an important principle. Um, And education is broadly defined. um, Education, uh, you know, everybody has a clear idea of what education means in public school settings, but education for kids with disabilities is really broadly defined, and that is, is critical depending on the specific needs of the parent. Another key principle is least restrictive environment, and in, in disability law, normalization or delivery of services in the least restrictive environment just means that kids are educated to the maximum extent possible or the maximum extent appropriate in a setting where they can interact with typically developing peers. But the key feature of least restrictive environment is it's not just education in a general education setting with typically developing peers, but there is this effort to balance the desire to have students in the least restrictive environment, but also to have students in an environment where their special education needs are being addressed. So it's not okay for a student with a disability to be in a general education setting if the student's needs are not being addressed in that setting. And that really is a key distinction, that sort of balancing between a desire to have students in the least restrictive environment, but also a setting where their needs are being appropriately addressed. All of these decisions are based on non-discriminatory evaluations and the development of individualized educational plans. And so individualized education, the, the way the process is intended to work is that a multidisciplinary team is established, uh, the student is evaluated, an array of information is gathered and reviewed, and then a decision is made about whether or not the student qualifies as a student with a disability. If the student qualifies, then an IEP is developed. The IEP is the individualized program that is developed to meet the unique needs of the student.
important. So beyond that, I think the only other important principle is procedural due process or protections to parents through the process. And basically that principle says that we do our best to make the system work the way it's supposed to work. But if things don't work or if people aren't satisfied with the outcome, there are protections available to parents that can be accessed through procedural due process. And I think Lara is going to do more of that. So I'll stop there for now and pass the mic back to you, Danielle. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad that you outlined not only the free and public education, least restrictive environment, individualized education plan, but also this due process part. And I, you know, I, I didn't know that the parent team was actually added in this policy. And I think that's a really important part in terms of having parent involvement and family involvement. Um, I know IDEA also outlines specific disability categories. And I know, Peter, you can speak to this. I believe there's 13. At Windward, students usually fall under certain categories of these disability categories. But I think, Lara, I want to ask you, what is the difference between a diagnosis and a classification as identified by IDEA and other policies? So at Diagnosis is um, a clinical term really reserved for, um, you know, it's an assignment given by a a medical professional or, uh, you know, a psychiatrist who is actually diagnosing a child with a specific diagnosis. um, And that would be something on the DSM-4. It's a really clinical term, and it's not necessarily something that a CSE or a a committee on special education could do, you know, for example, a school psychologist could not give a diagnosis. Most simply put, I'd say a diagnosis is really, um, you know, more of a a medical term or an official clinical term given by, by a certified professional, whereas a classification is more of an educational label. It's used by the school district, specifically the committee on special education, when the it's used to describe the student's primary handicapping condition. So the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, as Peter was explaining earlier, requires school districts to provide special education support for all students who are eligible. But um, not all students are eligible. The school district has to find that there is one classification or educational label, so to speak, that is so significantly impacting that child's performance in school that he or she should be eligible to receive services. So classification, there are 13 of them under the IDEA. It's not a medical term. It's not set in stone. Sometimes we will explain to our parents uh, not to worry so much about the, the classification that's used. The main concern is that the student gets the services and program that they need. And a classification is really the label which best describes at this point in time what is impacting the child's performance in school adversely. So that can be changed from time to time as needed. That's interesting. And you said, I know you both said um, that there's 13 categories across the IDEA. I know NCLD had reported that 80% of students have a specific language disability, a speech language impairment, or an other health impairment. Now, can you walk me through what these are? What is the, a difference between a specific language disorder as opposed to a speech language impairment as opposed to an other health impairment? Now, I also know that ADHD follows under the 
other health impairments. So let's walk me through those three main categories. Yeah. And I think this is back to me. I will say that Windward serves primarily students with language-based learning disabilities. And when students who need to be at a program like Windward are identified as students with disabilities, again, the, the typical disability categories for students who are diagnosed with a language-based learning disability, including dyslexia, are a student with a learning disability, student with an other health impairment. That is the disability category that includes ADHD, both inattentive, hyperactive, impulsive, and combined types. So it is, again, learning disability, other help and uh, other health impairment based on a diagnosis of ADHD. We do have some kids who are diagnosed as a student with a speech or language impairment. And each of these disability categories is defined under federal law and implementing regulations in New York. The Part 200 regulations include the definitions for learning disability, for uh, other health impairment, and for speech or language impairment. What's important is that, as Lara has said, the disability category made by the multidisciplinary team, and in New York, it's the Committee on Special Education. It's the decision of the multidisciplinary team is what's the disability category that most accurately reflects the student's needs. And for kids who need to be at Windward, um, again, for us, it's mostly learning disability, the definition of learning disability, other health impairment, and speech or language impairment is in the Part 200 regulations. But basically, the the easy conceptualization of a learning disability, kids with learning disabilities are typically kids with average to superior intelligence. They demonstrate a pattern of strengths and weaknesses in their cognitive profile, and they also demonstrate unexpected underachievement. And unfortunately, the definition of learning disability is extensive. There are three pages in the Part 200 regulations that describe decisions made to identify a student with a learning disability. These in dis- these involve discussions that, in- that look at things like discrepancy between actual and expected achievement or severe discrepancy analysis. They involve response to intervention. They involve monitoring of progress over time. So sometimes the decision to identify a student as a student with a learning disability can be complicated by the array of data that can be reviewed as a part of the evaluation process. Uh, Other health impairment uh, is the disability category for some kids at Windward who are both dyslexic but are also diagnosed with ADHD. And there are times when committees or multidisciplinary teams will not see the learning disability but will be comfortable identifying a student with another health impairment impairment based on a diagnosis of ADHD, either inattentive or hyperactive impulsive, or the other one is a combined type. There are kids also who have been identified as a student with a speech or language impairment, and sometimes those are young kids who have speech needs when they're little, meaning more related to uh, articulation and sound production, but also understanding the sound system of language. Some of those kids are 
identified early on as students with a speech impairment, but there are also kids who have language needs, meaning difficulty organizing language, difficulties with both receptive and expressive language, and those kids can also be dyslexic. They can also be students with a language-based learning disability, and sometimes teams are more comfortable identifying those kids as a student with a language impairment. And for kids who are at Windward, those are kids who have difficulty with expressive and receptive language that can impact reading comprehension and can impact written expression. As I also have been looking at the IDEA and reading other types of research and data surrounding these categories, some of it to me still seems a little vague and particularly with ADHD. So why is it considered an other health impairment? And in your analysis of this law and the IEP process, is it particularly vague? Again, for me, the interesting piece about that historically is that people have always con- been concerned about the increase in the count of kids with disabilities. So ADHD was included in the definition of the disability categories under IDEA in the 1997 reauthorization. And when that change was made, you saw an increase in the count of kids with other health impairments. That count uh, went up by 350% after ADHD was uh, included under other health impairment. And, and I think OHI includes a number of different different disability categories or disabilities, but they're all kind of looped together or included under that one head. And they are things like epilepsy, tuberculosis, uh, Tourette's syndrome, diabetes. A number of these are conditions that can impact school functioning. Um, To me, ADHD is a distinct feature that can exist by itself, but it can also exist uh, along with other disability categories. And I think the, the question about whether or not ADHD needs to be a separate disability category, I would just say we deal with law and regulations the way they're written and We learn to make sure that kids who need protections of special education are identified. It's not the identification category that's critical. It's the relationship between student needs and the services that really becomes more important. And I know Lara has done some work on this also, so I'm I'm happy to let her comment on her perception of this from her experiences. Right. And Lara, as you speak, thank you, Peter. It actually just lit a light bulb in my head, but... Lara, as you speak, given the research showing the comorbidities between ADHD and a learning disability, do you think that this classification is often detrimental or is it more important about the the student needs, as Peter was saying, in terms of how the um, specific individualized educational plan is outlined? It's interesting because I do see, um, I see your point in, I can see an argument being made for having ADHD as its own classification, um, but having it under other health impaired, um, which is separate than learning disability has actually not been really problematic or limiting. Um, in fact, it's, it's kind of been helpful from a strategic perspective because like Peter was saying, the, the priority is getting the students classified as students who do have special education needs and getting them the support and services they need. So sometimes, for example, it may be hard to convince the Committee on Special Education 
that a student's learning disability is so severe that it rises to the level of needing an IEP. That's a a much bigger discussion, as, as Peter alluded to earlier. But in cases where that student also has ADHD, we kind of use that other health impairment as a loophole to to get the Committee on Special Education to agree under that category. Um, and so we're still being genuine in that the AD, the, there is a real ADHD issue, so other health impairment is appropriate, but we could just as much have gone with learning disability. But when a team, for whatever reason, um, is finding it hard to agree that there is a significant learning disability we can use the other health impairment as another category to convince the team and the threshold um, is a bit lower. So it's a bit easier to show that an other health impairment or ADHD is impacting the child in school than it is the learning disability. For example, very often our students are very bright and they have a learning disability so they can test fairly well. And so the the school district will often try to deny services when a student is testing so close to average, and they will make the argument that the learning disability is really not having such an impact on the child's education. And when the scores indicate that the student is average or close to average, it's it's harder to convince them otherwise. However, when you have a child who has ADHD so obviously impacting their ability to attend in the classroom, we can Uh, more convincingly make the argument uh, using input from our teachers who work with the students directly that this student's ADHD is having a significant impact. You know, without the intensive redirection, support, small, small setting, we make the argument that the student would be unavailable to attend. So I think it actually serves to our benefit to have the the two different classifications. I think ADHD is so specific that it would be worth noting on the IEP, but there are other sections of the IEP where you can ask the team to describe the condition in further detail. It's just that the classification is limited to those 13 general categories. And can I just say that your comment about scores in the average range, I just think this is an issue that parents need to understand. There is nothing in law and regulations that says a determination that a student is a student with a learning disability is based on average range scores. What happens is that there are areas where, or disability categories, where multidisciplinary teams based on guidance from administrators establish guidelines or eligible criteria. And again, there is nothing in law and regulations that says that distinction between average and below average performance is the basis for making a determination about a disability. The way the process is supposed to work is that you're supposed to evaluate the student, continue, consider all aspects of the student's needs, and make a determination about whether or not the disability category is a learning disability. And because parent participation in decision-making is a 
key part of the law and multidisciplinary evaluations based on individual needs, these are key parts of the law. And if you're making a decision as a multidisciplinary team based on guidelines or eligibility criteria, then really there's no point in having a meeting if you're just going to rely on eligibility criteria. The intent of this law is you consider all aspects of student functioning, you determine the disability category, and you provide the services the student needs. And again, that's just one of these issues that we deal with at times. And yes, the fact that, you know, the language for speech or language impairment and for other health impairment is that the disability adversely affects student performance does give us these other disability categories. But to the extent that a decision is based on guidelines, that just compromises the way the system is supposed to be worked working based on both federal and state law and implementing regulations. Wow, thank you, Peter and Lara. These are really informative points about policy, the law, and education rights of students with disabilities. I mean, my head is spinning. I have 16 pages of notebook paper with notes and diagrams. Woo-wee, I have to listen again. I do appreciate that you both so thoroughly broke down the law and the rights of students with disabilities. I do think that the information you provide is so critical for families, so fundamentally important for all educators to know, not just special educators, but educators in early, K-12, higher ed, district leaders, etc. Okay, readers, take a brain break, review your notes, check out my top bookmarks on readpodcast.org, and join us for the next episode, also available wherever you get your podcasts, where Peter and Lara offer direct, actionable advice for families to ensure that all students receive the services they need. We'll be tackling questions like, where do parents start in the IEP process? Who makes the referral? How can I best be prepared for meetings? What rights do parents and educators have? Again, you will need a lot of notebook paper, your favorite coffee, matcha for me. Enjoy the next episode. Until next time, readers.